our Old Testament lesson, you've already heard uh, explained quite well, is going to come from um, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32. We're reading Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. Lots of twos there. Genesis 32, verse 22 through 32. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and and likewise, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he had, did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of the hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the, the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, Paul, when he is talking in Scripture of spiritual gifts, lists a lot of spiritual gifts, teaching, apostleship, tongues, all manner of spiritual gifts that Paul lists that the church is as available to the church, the church has access to, all manner of gifts. But Paul lifts one gift in particular that may seem like an odd gift. Paul talks about faith being a gift. And that may seem interesting because the Bible tells us that apart from faith, you can't be saved. That we are saved by grace through faith, lest no one can boast. Uh, Hebrews tells us that you cannot please God apart from faith. Uh, Abraham believed, believed, had faith, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it's interesting that you see that faith is the means of conversion and salvation, but yet, yet Paul says that faith is a gift. What does that mean? How can faith be both required and a gift? I think part of that is that for some people, faith just is simple. It just, it just makes sense. Some people just have a gift where they can easily believe, where they easily trust, where they just seem to have faith. I'll be very honest with you. My wife, Holly, she has, I believe, the gift of faith. Faith just comes natural for her. She naturally trusts in God. She naturally trusts in his plan. And she doesn't worry about a lot of stuff because she just has a faith that seems almost divinely given at times. I do not have that gift. I do not have the gift of faith. I have my entire life. My entire ministry, my entire, since I've been breathing, have struggled with doubt. I am by nature a skeptic. I am by nature cynical. And I do not have the gift of faith in the same way that my wife does. Faith seems to flow naturally for her. But for me, faith has always been, in many ways, a struggle. It's been almost a struggle at times. So because of that, 
I have spent a lot of time reading, trying to read different books and different things that would help increase my faith, that would help me look at faith from a rational and a regional perspective. I am always drawn to the rational side of faith. That's kind of where I make my intellectual home is in the rational side of faith. I tend to be, that's what we talked about experience. I tend to be a little distrusting of experience at times. I I use the analogy in in my my training uh, in, in chemistry. People who are scientists either hate chemistry and love biology or vice versa. Like I love chemistry. I hate biology. Always did, always will. Those of us that have a natural bent towards reason tend to be a little distrusting of experience. And those that have a natural natural uh, bent towards experience tend to have a a natural distrust of reason. And we're going to talk about how this all fits together in a second. But because I've always struggled and I've tried to read, I told you last week, I was going to give you a bibliography. So let me give you a bibliography of some really good books to read to help you approach faith from a reasonable perspective or to help faith make sense. The primary book that I would suggest, if you have not read, you need to add it to your reading list, is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. No book outside the Bible has formed my faith more than Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity emerged. It was actually a series of essays that C.S. Lewis wrote during World War II. And he read on the BBC. Uh, And um, they said during World War II, the two most well-known voices in the English-speaking world were Winston Churchill and C.S. Lewis. They were constantly on the BBC talking and giving updates. Mere Christianity is simply that. It is Lewis's articulation and defense of mere Christianity, simple Christianity. The Christianity that we affirm this morning in the Nicene Creed, like this simple faith that we believe, but it goes deeper into it and explores to it. It makes it make sense in a rational way. Another book from Lewis that I would recommend is a book called God in the Dock. In the British legal system, the person being prosecuted is said, put in the dock. So in God in the Dock, Lewis puts God in the place of being questioned. And it's just Lewis's exploration of some really deep and penetrating questions that he struggles with. So those two books by Lewis, if you've not read Mere Christianity, it needs to be on your reading list. But another book kind of along the same line that I really appreciate is a book written by a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a Presbyterian pastor who preached for years in New York City. He died recently last year and for my money was one of the best preachers of the last half century. He wrote a book called The Reason for God. And basically, The Reason for God, to me, feels like a modern interpretation of mere Christianity. Think of it like the King James versus the NIV. Mere Christianity is the King James. It sounds older. It sounds more British because, well, it is. Whereas The Reason for God was written by an American pastor in the the 2010s. It sounds easier to our ears to read. So I would encourage you to read uh, The Reason for God by, um, by Tim Keller. Another phenomenal book is called The Language of God by Francis Collins. Some of you may have heard the name Francis Collins before. He just retired as the director of the NIH, National Institutes of Health. He was forefront in a lot of the COVID response stuff during COVID. But Francis Collins' primary claim to fame is that he was the man who helped decode the human genome. Like he helped mark our genes as people. And Francis Collins is a Christian. He is a very, um, a very uh, in-depth Christian. 
And so he talks about how discovering DNA in the human genome actually increased his faith. And we're going to talk more about this in the sermon. Do not let anyone ever tell you that science and religion are combatants because they are not. Science and religion speak from the same thing. One is explaining to you how. One is explaining to you why. Science explains the how. Faith explains the why. Francis Collins unpacks a lot of that in his book, The Language of God, dealing with DNA and the genome and his faith. Oh, that would then led me to another book called, the, called God, the Evidence. It's not quite as well known as the other ones. It was written by a man by the name of um, Patrick Glenn. Basically, he, he looks at things like um, uh, near-death experiences. He looks at things like these, there, there are these mathematical formulas that you see all across the cosmos. And if the, 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 the formulation of gravity mathematically was one degree off, all of life would be sucked into a black hole. Like just, just, just the precision of the universe is so finely tuned that if any one thing was off, it just would collapse. So God, the evidence deals with those type things. So I would encourage you to read that one. But then two of the things that I've played around with, tried to understand, one was not a book, but a philosophical argument called the ontological argument that was first uh, put forth by St. Anselm in the 11th century. And it basically deals with how our imagination works and how our mind works and how if our mind can reason that there's a supreme being, where does that concept come from? And if we have imagination and we have these type things, shouldn't that then lead to something else? So Anselm's and his ontological argument is a fascinating philosophical exercise. And then Pascal's Wager, you're probably familiar with Pascal's Wager. It basically puts forth this, um, as a Christian and an atheist, uh, if the atheist is wrong, I mean, if the atheist is right, if the atheist is right, there is no God, what does our faith cost us? Nothing, you know? But if we're right and they're wrong, what does that cost the atheist? You know, his wager, like which side of that coin do you want to take? As somebody who's been, who's someone who's struggled at times with faith, I've done a lot of reason. I've always tried to approach faith as a faith, knowing that at times in faith, you've just got to believe, turn your brain off and just leap. But I've always tried to approach it reasonably and rationally. I've always been very comfortable with questions. I've always been very comfortable with skeptics because I've spent a lot of my life both with questions and being a little bit skeptical. And by the way, that's one thing I love about our United Methodist theological method is that we do not run away from that. We do not run away from reason. We do not run away from questions. We do not run away from asking the big, important questions of faith. Today's concept in our series we're calling Balance, about how we live a balanced theological life, is dealing with reason. We've already talked of tradition and experience and scripture. Of course, Scripture is primary. We need to always reiterate that. This is not putting anything above Scripture, but these are the tools that we use to understand Scripture. So Scripture remains primary. Scripture is always primary. But reason is thinking through it, thinking through our faith, and then applying it to our life, y'all. When we can think through faith and then apply what we learn to our day-to-day life, it makes our faith make sense. It's thinking through it 
not being afraid to ask these questions, and then taking what we learn and then applying it to our day-to-day living and our day-to-day life. That's why I love this, this sermon, this, this text today, y'all, wrestling with God. Oh, my goodness. How many times in my life have I wrestled with God? How many times have I had questions or doubts or fears or worries? How much of my faith feels like a constant wrestling with God? That's where I feel like I've spent most of my life sometimes is wrestling with God. I love this analogy of how I think about Jacob wrestling with God. You ever known a child that sometimes you just had to hold that child and rock them to sleep to get them to tuck her out? I think that's how faith is for some of us. God wrestles with us and he holds us in his arms till we stop kicking and we fall to sleep intellectually in the arms of our father. Sometimes we wrestle with God. I think today's text tells us that that's okay. It's okay. It's a struggle. It can even be a fight at times. But it's in those moments that we grow. What did Jesus tell us? To love the Lord our God will love our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our minds? I think it means this, that we are called to take our faith seriously. We're called to think about things and ask big questions and ponder and learn and grow and to take our natural intellect and apply it to God's word, but then to allow God's word to enliven our intellect so that, yes, we bring our intellect to scripture, but then scripture confirms and grows our intellect. The Bible's still primary. And we're always saved by faith, not by reason. Reason does not save us. Faith saves us. However, to be a Christian, to read the Bible, does not mean that we have to turn off our brains. We do not check our brains at the door. But as Christians, we're required to love the Lord our God with our minds. Our minds are an important part of that. So to me, to value reason points us to, I think, three pretty simple concepts as Christians. First, to value reason as a theological method points us to theology. Theology is a word, theos, Greek for God, ology, meaning study of, theology, so the study of God. We are called to think through what we believe. First, as Christians, we have a Christian theology. We have our doctrine, our creed that we confessed each Sunday. That's why we confess our creeds. It's important for us to know what we believe. Our doctrine matters. What we believe matters. I like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, I'm paraphrasing here, he said, you can be a Christian with really bad theology. He said, and then the way I put it, it's like this, is the, he said, theology is a road map. So if I was to say, hey guys, after church, we're going to drive to Los Angeles. We're going to all hop in the church van and we're going to go to L.A. But you can't take your phone with you and you can't take your map and you can't take your GPS. GPS. We could get to Los Angeles without a map or a phone. It'd be hard, but we could get there. Just drive to the ocean and turn right or left. We figured out. You can get somewhere without a map. You can be a Christian with really bad theology. But good theology makes it make more sense. So that cancer diagnosis does not mean that God's out to get you. 
that he is a vindictive God set on punishing you. That tragedy doesn't mean that you've irritated the divine Zeus in heaven. No, our theology, what we believe about God, tells us that no, as Christians, we don't believe that God's out to get us. But we believe that, yea, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thou rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Our theology doesn't push us away from an angry God, but our theology pulls us closer to a loving God. Our theology matters. And likewise, as United Methodists, we are Wesleyan. That does not mean, as United Methodists, that does not mean that other traditions are wrong. Our Baptist brothers and sisters are not wrong. Our Catholic brothers and sisters are not wrong. But as Wesleyans, we read the Bible through the lens looking at what John Wesley would call holiness. That we are a people that push for sanctification, Christian growth. Well, then what does that mean? Jesus says that our job is to love God and love neighbor. So I always ask myself this. Does my theology, does what I believe, does it help me love God more? And does it help me love my neighbor more? That's the point of our theology. Our theology should push us to love God more. We believe that Christ died for the world. Everybody. So if I believe theologically, reasonably, that Christ died for the world, everybody. You know who that means I got to be nice to? Everybody. Right? That's what good theology does. It points you to how you should live your life. So if I really and truly believe that Jesus Christ died for Republicans and Democrats, if I really and truly believe that Jesus Christ died for conservatives and liberals, I'm preaching here. If, that really, if I really believe Jesus died for United Methodist and Global Methodist, you know what that means I got to do? Love them all. Love them all. Whether I agree or not is not the point. What matters is my doctrine tells me, God's word tells me he died for the world. So I've got to love all those. That's my, see, my doctrine drives me to that. Thinking through this matters. So, to have reason as a method means that our theology matters. To have reason as a method means, I, I love someone said this, that all truth is God's truth. What that means is that, is that our reason drives us to understand and value things like science. Um, my, like I said, my background is in chemistry. Science has not pushed me further from God, but drawn me closer to God. So as a, as a chemist, when I read about quantum mechanics and the nature of subatomic particles and the unpredictability of it and how even in quantum mechanics it requires a level of faith, I understand that science is just as much faith-based sometimes as religion and that God's present in all these things. So science asking the big question should not be something that draws us further from God but should pull us closer to God. I like what someone once said. One drink from the natural scientist may turn you into an atheist. But when you drink in deeply and fully, you will find your faith illumined by the God of all creation. Science and religion are not enemies, y'all. They're allies. I believe that fully and completely and totally. So science can illuminate these things. But ask in philosophy. Outside of these other folks I told you, I've learned as much from Soren Kierkegaard, a Dutch philosopher who had a lot to say about life and individuality and living our life in a correct manner. 
the big questions. Y'all, I truly and deeply believe that when we ask the deep questions, God will draw us to himself in that. So don't be, so art. I'm reading a book right now on the a poetic understanding of the cross that we can find God in art. Look at these stained glass windows, y'all. I don't care how bad my sermon is, you can't help but find God here because of creation and of beauty. And I think that value reason as a method points us towards conversation. Because in that, y'all, and we can find God in our, just our shared common sense. When you find good, earthy, common wisdom, you find God there. My granny didn't graduate from high school. She would not be called, what we, she would not be what we call an intellectual person. But I learned as much from Blanche Bigner about God as I have from my theological professors. It's in our shared common approach we find God when we listen. That points us to conversations. Y'all, John Wesley said you can no more be a holy Christian. You can, all, you can no more be a solitary Christian than you can be a holy adulterer. We need each other in our faith. We need each other. I need you. I need your conversations. I need your wisdom. I need your understanding of Scripture. You make me a better pastor. You make me a better father. You make me a better believer. So in what John Wesley called conferencing our Christian conversation, we grow, we learn, we become more holy. Yes, when we value reason as a method, we learn to grow from each other. We grow from each other. So reason is a good thing, y'all. Like I said, some of us are more naturally wired towards experience, and that's wonderful. I need you creatives in my life. I need your people who can find God in all these creative places because I'm not wired that way. But, but I hope you need me too. I hope you need my skepticism and my questions and my curiosity. Because I think together, y'all, when we live in this together, Loving God with all of our souls, but also all of our minds, that we truly find God reflected in Scripture. Because all these things take us to Scripture, and all these things help us understand Scripture. Remember, Scripture's always, always primary. So, one of the, I read an article recently for, about, um, from Fuller Seminary in California, one of the great seminaries of our faith. And uh, they asked the question what is it? that keeps Christian kids involved in the faith and in church when they get to college. And they studied, what, so what is it that we can do as Christian parents, Christian grandparents, to keep our kids in the faith as they grow older? And I think our natural impulse is to protect our children, protect them from this evil world, round, you know, circle the wagons, keep them protected. But what Fuller found was interesting. The kids who keep their faith in college are the kids who grew up in households that valued questions, that valued conversation, that valued learning. Because that way, the first time they had a question about their faith wasn't in college when they separated from their family and their churches. But they always knew to ask questions. They always knew to learn. They always knew to grow. They always knew that their intellect is not something to be hidden, but their intellect is something to be baptized and brought to the use of Christ. We are to love the Lord our God with our minds as much as anything else. 
So it's the question is okay. It's the question that's okay. Because what, what will happen is this. The Bible tells us is this. is seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. And if we're seeking God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, God will show himself to us through his word, through our theology, and through our relationships. When we live in this way, y'all, God finds us in so many unexpected ways. Our faith, our doctrine, and our theology calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Through all that we are, may we love God with all that we are. Let us pray.